Welcome to our 5,000 Year Leap class. My name is Julene Jackson. This is my wonderful husband, Al Jackson. I'm with Moms for America, but on the, the evenings that we teach together, man and wife, we say we're families of America. We're so glad to have you. We're on our fourth lesson of the 5,000 year leap. So at the end of our, our 12 week class, you know, you might, God might put upon your heart. I think I need to start a cottage meeting in my uh, neighborhood or in my community. And uh, Maria can help you with that, what that looks like and what you could start with teaching. This is the 5,000 year leap class was the very first class that I began to study when I began to gather together with moms in a community in, in Hood River, Oregon, 12 years ago. And so I, I think this is a, a really good place to start to lay a foundation with these 28 principles. So we are on the fourth of our 12 weeks class of the 5,000 year leap. These Are you starting to catch the vision of the magnificence of these 28 ideas? that our founders used to establish this first free people in modern times. You know, it was these ideas that really changed the world and allowed our founders to structure government with all power in the people. Now, as we get going into these classes, we record these classes. And so they're all up online. The first three classes are up online. We're in our fourth class tonight. And, and we're working through Moms for America, where we believe that liberty begins at home, but we are families for America tonight, that's for sure. It's been said that 10 small discussion groups in a community will do more to create a new way of life than 100 mass meetings with 1,000 people in attendance. And I have seen that firsthand in my life that it is powerful. As I came together uh, once a month, in Oregon with about 10 women, it began to change me. It, it, it changed the kind of the trajectory trajectory of our marriage. As, as Al and I now teach these principles and have for several years, Al ran for office. It's, it's impacted my children. Kayla Rose, she, uh, she and I did a, a podcast that was just released. And to hear her talk about principles of liberty and freedom and responsibility and accountability. It, she doesn't know it, but it had its roots in mama learning these things in a cottage meeting setting. And so, and if your kids are out of the door now, as you, as you come to these classes, I think you will be inspired. Well, what can I do to instill these ideas in my grandchildren? You all have seen and heard me say that most of our kids are out of the house. And I send out a little devotional every day with a little patriotic quote or a spiritual quote and a scripture. And then I bear a little personal testimony of, of the quote and then and, uh, send some pictures. And that's kind of my way that I can still have a little bit of an influence on these adult children that we have. So whatever you do, as you come together to learn, whether it's online or in person, God will magnify your efforts because there's something powerful about coming together with like-minded people on a regular basis to study, to learn, to share experiences, to teach one another. And then you go back to your places and your spaces and you shore up the people that you love and you begin to heal the home and to teach the home and to heal the community and that is how you heal a nation now i think so many of us are worried about this rising generation where it seems like we're losing 
young people to false ideas and false notions. And if we lose our young people, we lose our country. I just read an article recently talking about how young people are sadder than ever. I think Maria uh, will put this article in the link, but it talks about how social media is skewing their uh, sense of reality and they're lacking sociality. They'll just come home and lay on the bed and look at you know their, their feeds for hours instead of going out and being with people. And this imminent news, it's almost uh, they're in lifetime watching the doom and gloom of all the newscasts of the world going on, everything that's wrong. And, and, and you take those factors, this article says, along with parent, par, parental strategies that you know, are so protective and hovering over their children, not allowing them to fail kind of thing. It's causing young people to be sadder. Are you seeing that? More uh, instances of anxiety and depression and, and struggling emotionally. You know, history is replete with stories of of overcoming and of, of victory and God's hand in the in you know in helping you overcome in in the miracles of this land, and they're inspirational and they're full of hope. So you know the the beautiful thing about cottage meetings as you as you learn these principles, it helps you to get anchored in hope. And when mother and father and grandma and grandpa are anchored in hope, it will help shore up and anchor the rising generations. And as we learn these brilliant principles, we know they work. History and experience prove that they work, that under these principles, you know, within a 200 year period, when the constitution was written in 1787, within under 200 years, we were putting a man on the moon. We literally took a 5,000 year leap from you know, using the same ox and uh, the plow and the, uh, the cart and the hoe to uh, you know, having freedom unleashed and unleashing human ingenuity and creativity and putting a man on the moon uh, uh, within 200 years. So I hope with that, we are ready to start. I hope everyone has their student manual. You can get it at kimbercurriculum.com, $24.99. Fill in the blanks. You have a little bit of homework when you come to class each week. The, the blanks, the keys are in the back. And then you can, you can certainly just get the book, which is good. But I like the student manual because it prepares you for the day that you might actually teach. You've got, if you fill in the blank, you can take notes. There's more space to take notes. I hope you're, um, you, the 28 principles, you've gotten your, what is it, for five bucks, you get a hundred, look, this is my beat up one, uh, you get a hundred bookmarks with the principles on the back. I promise you these principles, if you will take the time to memorize them, they will become your best friends. They will rise up in your very need at hour of need when, you know, someone is saying something crazy and using a lot of emotion, mm -hmm. spewing emotion you will put forth a, a principle and it will elevate the conversation. So last, last uh, two weeks, we talked about how the, the best way to have strong government and good relationships with people is to abide by natural law. And in order, you know, for, for a Republican constitution to survive, 
which is self-government, people have to be morally strong and virtuous. They have to be looking to the supreme creator of the world and his natural law in order to maintain this kind of self-government. And how, how do we stay you know, virtuous and morally strong? Well, we elect good leaders that will, virtuous leaders that will base legislation upon God's law. And in order to do that, we've got to be practicing principles and teaching principles of religion. A free people cannot be maintained without religion. And remember, we learned the five points of sound religion, the American religion, the universal religion that Ben Benjamin Franklin talked about last week. It is simply that there is a God and that he has a moral code and that we're going to be held responsible for the way that we treat one another and that we um, are going to live beyond this life and we are going to be judged for our, con our conduct. And those are the five tenets that our founding fathers wanted taught in the schools, along with knowledge. They wanted morality and religion. Those five points, there is a God, there's a sense of right and wrong. We're going to be responsible for how we treat one another. We're going to live beyond this. We're going to be judged for what we do on, on this earth. And so that takes us into our fifth, sixth, and seventh principle that we're going to talk about tonight. The fifth principle is this is a self-evident truth that our founders, you know, as they study these principles, clearly they came to the conclusion that we were created by God because he is our creator. We're, we're all responsible to him. We're all dependent upon him. This is self-evident you know, that, that, that they felt this way. It kind of reminds me sometime, uh, one time someone said, well, what, what if people don't believe in God? You know, they don't have to adhere to his laws. They don't even believe in him. They don't feel responsible to, to be obedient to him. And someone said, well, it's like saying, I don't believe in gravity. Oh yeah, there's no gravity. There's no such thing as gravity. So he goes, someone goes up to the top of the building and jumps off because he's for sure. There's no gravity. I don't have to, the laws of gravity don't, they're not even real. And certainly the, the moment you jump off, you will realize, yes, indeed, you're going straight down, you know? And so you, you, you can say you might not believe in God, but there it, it's irrefutable. You know, there, it, it is, there is a supreme being and, and the founders were going to, kind of weave through some of their feelings about this, that they vigorously affirmed in their writings that there absolutely was an existence of a creator, a designer of all things in nature uh, and a prom promulgator, I'm not saying that right, prom promulgator of all laws which govern nature. Now, the founders uh, love to study a man by the name of John Locke. Now, John Locke was an English philosopher, and he lived from 1632 to 1704, and they studied John Locke a lot, and they quoted him. He was a part of the, those Enlightenment thinkers. And John Locke said, you know, it, 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 it's, there's no such thing to think that this earth and our existence here is just some sort of fortuitous circumstance, like it just happened, you know, by accident or by chance. He said, uh, for example, it, it wouldn't even be possible to think that the forces of nature could just produce a watch or a lead pencil or let alone the intricacies of a, a, an ear or a eye or even the simple organism in nature. 
all of these products are products of intelligent design and high precision engineering. So John Locke would have, would have, you know, completely dispelled this idea of a big bang theory that, you know, just by chance we came to be, it's kind of like someone explained it to me. The big bang theory is like saying there was a, an explosion in a printer shop and all of a sudden that explosion produced a dictionary that can actually replicate itself. I mean, that's almost an absurd notion, right? But that's kind of like saying we just, there was a big bang or we just kind of evolved from the water to the ground to, 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 to who we are today. So how can we really know there is a God? In John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, he insisted that everyone can know that there is a divine creator. It's just a matter of thinking about it, he said. You know, each of us know that we exist. You know, we can look at each other tonight on Zoom. Yeah, we exist. With God, each person can say, I am, John Locke said. Furthermore, he said, each person knows that I'm a, I'm a something. I am a something. So a something cannot be produced by a nothing. Therefore, whatever brought man and everything else into existence had to be a something because a nothing cannot produce a something. So there has to be a, a superior creator. So how do we get to know God? Man is capable of knowing many things about God, John Locke said. The creator must be a cognitive thinker, uh, be able to reason or to think because we are like this. And he said, we can also know that the divine creator had a sense of compassion and love, these kind of sublime qualities, because we have these qualities. It's very much a biblical concept that we are created in his image. The very first chapter in Genesis reminds us of that. John Locke would go on to say that the creator would reflect a fine sense of right or wrong and even a sense of indignation or anger uh, with those who violate the laws of right action because God has a sense, a strong sense of justice and he also has remorse for wrong and, and that arouses compassion in the creator as does it with, with us when, when we do wrong or someone is showing remorse, we're, we feel badly for them. And so the, going along with I, this idea, the, create, the founders, you know, surmise that if we're created in the image of God, you know, God must have a sense of humor because we appreciate humor and he, you know, must be a great artist because everything that the creator organizes is in terms of beauty through color, form and, and contrast. And, and we too recognize and, and, and love beauty. And so John Locke said, there are many things man can know about God. And because any thoughtful person can gain an appreciation and conviction of these many attributes of the, of the creator. John Locke simply said, look, an atheist just has failed to apply his divine capacity for reason and, comp and, and observation. So he just hasn't, John Locke said, an atheist just hasn't really thought it through. And the founding fathers agreed with John Locke. They considered the existence of a creator one of the most fundamental premises 
of all underlying self-evident truth. And that's the first point in sound religion. There is a creator. And uh, our founder studied um, another thinker by the name of Blackstone, who um, he was like an authority on this subject that, that the laws that our creator constituted could be considered a moral code. And, and so, you know, this was not a concept that was new to the founders because they studied these thinkers that were confirming what they felt were self-evident truth. Blackstone would go on to say, when the supreme being formed the universe, he organized it and then impressed certain principles upon that matter from which it can never depart, right? And he called it Blackstone. He would go on to say that the will of God, which is expressed in the orderly arrangements of the universe, is called the laws of nature, there are laws for human nature that have been revealed by God. So number one, there are laws for human nature revealed by God. And then there are natural laws, he said. And Thomas Jefferson wove that exact phrasing, the law of nature and nature's God, into the Declaration of Independence along with, it, with three other references. So five references to, to God. So our founders definitely felt that God was not indifferent, he was not remote, he was not disinterested, that he was intelligent and he was benevolent and he was anxious and wanted to be involved with his creations. And you will see our founders in our early history would have days of fasting and prayer in America where they would come together and they would petition the heavens both publicly and privately and express gratitude. And George Washington was profuse about, you know, after a big battle, calling his troops together and, and having them go to church or having there be a day of prayer and fasting. So Al is going to talk us a little bit of, uh, about George. Good, good. Thank you, Jelaine. So Washington was an interesting general. He definitely recognized that he needed God's hand in helping win the, the Revolutionary War. And so he made sure that he cleaned up among the troops, no foul language. If there were ladies of the evening, they were asked to leave. And he wanted his officers to set the example for their men by going to church on Sunday. And so when it comes to relating to a nearness to God, George Washington typified that among the founders and knew the existence of God. In fact, 67 times he acknowledged the hand of providence in averting disaster for the troops and helping them win. So let me, let me share my screen here. I want to show you a picture of John Locke in case he looks like someone in your neighborhood. <laughs> here's uh, William Blackstone. I, I don't think that's his hair, but it, it actually is nice. I mean, he Men's Hair Club for Growth. I think he could do a commercial for that. But he lived from 1723 to 1780. So George Washington said this in his first inaugural address. And just keep in mind, he had, and we'll talk about this when we get into the Healing of America seminars, but there was, it's clear that there was a vision that he saw where he was shown America and it was in Valley Forge and George Washington needed some strengthening. 
and he was at the depths of despair. His officers were about to leave him. Things were not going well. The Congress was not taking care of them. And, you know, his, and it's an example of the Lord coming to us in our time of need. And he did have an experience by himself where he did see a vision of America, which strengthened him so that he would know that they would win. But he did see America. And this is what he said in his first inaugural address. He said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. Beautiful statement there by him. So if there was ever any doubt that the founders trusted in God, that became the national motto, which is on our money today, our currency, and God we trust. Notice it doesn't say in government we trust, but in God we trust. So principle number six says all men are created equal. Hmm, what does that mean? You know, offhand, I'm like, well, I don't know about that. And I think the founders might have said, well, I don't know about that e either, but we are created equal in three ways. So the founders wrote in the declaration that some truths are self-evident. And one of them, they say, that all men are created equal. Now, we know that's not exactly true because we all have different, you know, skills and abilities and strength and capacity and emotional uh, stability and, and, you know, social status and opportunities. We don't have equal opportunities always uh, for self-fulfillment. Let's just say that if you're, if you're born into certain regions of the world or in certain homes. So then how can we be Hmm, equal. What did they mean by that? Well, the answer is we're not, we're not all created equal, but we are in three ways. We're created equal. And this is what the founders intended, that we are treated as equals in the sight of God and in the sight of the law and in protection of our rights. So in these three ways, we are created equal, right? So members of society, all persons should have equal guarantee in these areas, equality under the law, and also uh, an equality of rights. And that would mean we have a right to our life and to our God-given liberties. Now, John Adams was over in France um, in the 17, I, uh, over in France when Jean Jacques Rousseau, Rousseau, there you go, <laughs> Rousseau, he was born in 1712, passed in 1778, Rousseau was born in Geneva, and he was a part of those, uh, that enlightenment thinker, and he was known for his discourse on inequality, and his writings were really influential during the French Revolutionary War. And he wrote, Mr. Russo, that all men were designed to be equal in every way. Now, John Adams was over in this region where Rousseau lived. I wondered if they crossed paths for a time. And he said, well, all men are born to equal rights. Well, that's maybe true. But to teach 
John Adams said, to teach that all men are born with equal powers and faculties and equal influence in, in society or equal properties or advantages in life is a gross fraud. <laughs> That's what John Adams said. So what does it mean then to have equal rights? Well, the goal is to provide equal justice, which means protecting the rights of people equally. Okay, that's what it means to be all men are created equal. So what does that look like? That would be at the bar of justice. We all have a right to secure our rights at the ballot box. Um, we can all vote for the candidate of our choice at, at the employment office. We can compete for jobs. We have rights to purchase and rent homes or to enjoy, uh, you know, freedom of religion or freedom of speech, the right to peaceably assemble and so forth. Those are what our equal rights are. So Al is going to take us to the next part of our, our lesson. Okay, thank you. For some reason here, Jolene, I don't know why she would, but she asked me to handle this section on minorities. <laughs> Go figure. So there are minorities in every country. The interesting thing is the United States of America is a nation of immigrants. And it highlights that beautifully in the book. However, newly arrived people to the country are come from diverse colors, different backgrounds, different religious, religions, ethnic backgrounds, and so forth. They come here as outsiders and they want to become insiders. The cool thing about the US Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is that it enables people to assimilate faster. It's a difficult path to break in. And the two things that are especially notable about this is that it's remarkable that the founders were able to establish a society of freedom and opportunity, which would attract so many millions of immigrants. We, we travel quite a bit. We take Ubers. I think one of the cool thing about taking an Uber or a taxi is asking the person who's driving you where they're from. And nine times out of 10, they're from another country and they love being here because they work hard and they are able to enjoy the fruit of their labors. So the founders created a society where freedom and opportunity would attract so many immigrants. And then secondly, it's even more remarkable that within just two or three generations, nearly all these millions of immigrants become first class citizens. So in the United States, immigrants or outsiders can become outsiders, insiders much more rapidly. Nevertheless, for some minorities, the transition is painful. So I wanna focus on the founding documents as it relates to African-Americans. And where in any country in the world can former slaves rise to prominence in America? And where in the world history has a country ever fought a war over the issue of slavery? And the founders would have been mortified 
that it would take a civil war to free the slaves as they intended per Article One, Section 9 of the Constitution. And we'll go into that in some more depth when we get into the Healing of America seminars. But the founders, as I've indicated previously, were hoping to keep slavery condensed to the South, keep it contained, and it eventually would die out. And so Article One, Section 9 addresses that because the prevailing theme in the Constitutional Convention was that slavery was wrong and that it needed to go away. How can we advocate for freedom for ourselves and still have slaves? And so when you go back to this issue of immigrants, one of the things that really struck my mind this last summer was the Olympics. And when you look at other teams, Jamaica, Russia, and China, they all look the same. They all look the same. Very few of these countries actually embrace their minorities and that they can actually break in and represent their country in the Olympics. And then you look at America. What other country looks like that at the Olympics? Looking at the Olympic team, even in the Winter Olympics, Look at the diversity there on the left. And then you've got the gymnastics team on the right. And so when I think about African-Americans, most of these individuals on this screen right here started out as slaves. Booker T. Washington, who is right here, he's the second from the right, sitting in the chair looking straight at us. And he was born a slave, freed after the Civil War, ended, of course valued the importance of education, stopped at nothing to learn how to read and write and get an education. And he attributes his strong family, a mother and a father in the home, strong faith, faith in God, and education were the ingredients to success. And that's what the founders intended. And so if you can combine those three things and then create an environment where there's maximum freedom, you can achieve, you can overcome and Booker T. Washington is an example to me of that as he went on to become president of Tuskegee Institute, which is in Tuskegee, Alabama. Julian and I have been on the campus and he's buried there, felt of the spirit, but just transformed the lives of thousands of black people and, and really touched everybody, all Americans. And the right here, Robert Small, born a slave, commandeered, uh, learned how to, he was a seaman learned and, and commandeered a Confederate ship, learned the signals, got the ship from the south or to the north, gave it to the Union soldiers. Abraham Lincoln cut him a check for $1,500, which was a lot of money back then. He took the money, started his own business, became wealthy, became a member of Congress and doing reconstruction, actually went back and bought the plantation that he was a slave on and had enough compassion on the mistress of the house who had lived there and actually owned him, he allowed her to stay there till she died in the master bedroom. Compassion from him. Down here on the left, we don't see her image anymore in the stores. I don't buy this brand anymore because of it. Nancy Green, born a slave, became a millionaire being the face of Aunt Jemima. Now she is completely erased from history because someone deemed that that image on the box, her face was somehow racist. So let me, let's talk about black achievement in America. So the marriage rate, 
after the Civil War until the 1960s. Even during the Depression, when the unemployment rate was very high and it was 40% among Blacks, the marriage rate was higher than in the white community. Two-thirds of all freed slaves after the Civil War learned to read and write by 1910. And because Blacks weren't allowed to participate in the economy with other whites because of Jim Crow laws, they were they formed their own businesses, their own churches, their own schools, and amassed over $700 million in assets by the mid-20th century. So they created their own schools. And, and, and that third bullet, 5,000 schools were helped created by Booker T. Washington and his white Jewish benefactor, Julius Rosenwald, who was the CEO of Sears at the time. Most of those schools closed during integration because a lot of Black teachers and Black businesses went under when the kids were, they were deemed to be in inferior school. So they were bused and sent to white schools. So all those black teachers lost their jobs. So let's talk about the constitution. So Frederick Douglass said this about the constitution. Instead of being the honest men I have been before declared them to be, the framers were great imposters. If the constitution was never intended to include black people within the document's legal protections, to interpret the Constitution as supporting slavery is to perpetuate a slander upon the memory of the framers. So when he first escaped slavery and became an active abolitionist, the abolitionists told him the Constitution was a pro-slavery document and that, Frederick, your job is to talk. We'll do all the thinking. And when he got away from them, he read the document himself and he saw in it that it was based on natural law. And he became to believe that natural law doctrine justified a moral aspirational reading of the constitution. He said, even if the founders had intended to establish slavery, they had no right to do so because slavery violates human rights under God given natural law. So he viewed the constitution as a slave's best hope for liberty. And Dr. King, in 1963 said the same thing. He said, when the architects of our Republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. The note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. His job was to have America live up to those ideals. And so the, the premise here and the thing that I want to emphasize the most is that because of the founding of this country and the principles which were established, the promise of America is for everyone. Okay, Julie, back to you. Okay, wonderful. I love those stories. I never get tired of hearing those stories of um, Black members of society that were born into slavery and they overcame and they they went on to do, you know, every single one of those pictures of people on the screen have a story to be told. And, and we try to raise our kids uh, teaching them these stories. So when they experienced a little adversity or racism, they knew that there were people that had come before them that experienced true racism and look how they overcame exactly. through hard work and tenaciousness and, and didn't you know, play the victim card, even though injustices had occurred and they made their you know stumbling blocks, right. stepping stones. And so anyways- I like that stumbling block, stepping stone. That's good. When the kids would, we, lived out west for a while and 
the kids were the only people of color in their schools and they would come home and lament their day because people would say insensitive things to them. Then we would sit down and tell them the story of Ruby Bridges, who was the young girl in New Orleans who integrated the school, all white school by herself. Do you think she was under a little bit of stress and things? I mean, parents were so mean and nasty to her that the National Guard had to escort her into the school. But she's still alive today, actually, and tells a great story about that. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to principle seven. It talks about the proper role of government is to protect equal rights. Okay, those equal rights that we talked about not provide equal things. Now the word equality has really been hijacked in this day and age. And now they, you know, they've morphed equality into equity, which means equal outcomes or everyone's entitled to equal results. And that's not what our founders intended, equal rights. Remember they felt everyone should have equal rights under the law and have equal rights to their life and their God-given liberties. Now, during the time that the founders lived in Europe, it was a really popular thing to, to, you know, accept this notion of the government taking from the haves and giving to the have-nots so that everyone might be truly equal. But the founders perceived this to be a a fallacy. So what are the powers that can be assigned to the government, uh, they would ask. They recognize that people can't delegate to their government the powers to do anything that they which themselves can't lawfully do. And so, for example, every person is entitled to protection of life, liberty, and property. Therefore, it was a legitimate thing to be able to delegate to the government the task of setting up a police force to protect the lives and the property of of the community. But Just suppose if there was a kind-hearted man in your neighborhood and one of your neighbors had two cars and the other neighbor had no cars. So in the spirit of benevolence, this neighbor went over to the neighbor with two cars and, and took one of his cars and gave it to the neighbor with no cars. Now he would be arrested for car theft, no matter how good his intentions were, he would be guilty of violating the natural rights of his more prosperous neighbor. So, you know, of course, the two-car neighbor could just on his own donate the car to the poor neighbor if he wanted. That would have been his decision, uh, and, but, but it wasn't up to the kind-hearted neighbor to play Robin Hood and give to the have-nots. So how does the government then sometimes commit legal crimes? So su- <laughs> suppose that kind-hearted man decided to go to the mayor and the city council and force the the neighbor with two cars to give one to the neighbor with no cars. Does that make it more legitimate? I mean, obviously it says in the reading, it, it makes it worse because if the mayor and the city council do it in the name of the law, the man has lost his, the man who has lost his car, not only has lost his rights to his property, but he's lost all rights to appeal for help in protecting his properties. So the founders recognize the moment the government is authorized to start leveling material possessions of the rich in order to have equal distribution of goods, the government now begins to uh, be able to deprive any of the people of their equal rights 
to enjoy their lives, liberty, and property. Do you think that really began full scale uh, in 1913 when the 16th Amendment was passed? The, that, that's the amendment that formed the federal tax. So now right. the federal government could go directly into the homes and they started that graduated tax scale. That's exactly That right. if you earned more money, you would be taxed more. So right. your wealth wasn't really protected. Right. And it wasn't equal. And so, and then if the floodgates open in 1936 with the Butler case, where the general welfare clause was redefined, which, said, which, which allowed the government to spend your money any way they see yeah, it. Yeah. Dip into your property. So um, anyways, the founders took a, a different approach to this. Their policy was to guarantee the equal protection of all people's rights and thus to ensure that they would have freedom to prosper. So they didn't want there to be a, a special penalty, penalty for getting too rich. So French philosophers of the day cried out in protest, but the, you know, look, if you allow people to work hard, some people are gonna become very rich. And the founder said, yeah, indeed, the more the better. And so they felt that America would become a nation that should be dominated by a prosperous middle class with a few people becoming very rich. And as for the poor, the important thing they wanted was to ensure the freedom to prosper so that no one would be locked into a poverty level uh, that way, the way that they had seen happen in other parts of the world. So how do we make whole nations prosperous? It was realized that, look, some are going to prosper more than others. And some would prosper more than others because of their talents or their good fortunes or their inheritance. But most would prosper because of hard work. And that's what we <laughs> saw, you know, once slavery was outlawed through Black achievement. They just, they just were gritty. And they didn't let anything stop them. Um, little Tyler, I don't know if Tyler is on the call. She gave a most wonderful class on this and the 12 cottage meeting series on Wednesdays, the Mamas Meet 12 Central Standard Time. And Tyler, she's our state liaison from Virginia. She gave a great class on, on teaching these principles of self-reliance, of industry, thrift, and hard work. I'd really recommend going and watching that lesson number 11 under the cottage meeting series. It's recorded. The one that I taught is recorded, but um, um, Maria, maybe you could put the one that um, Tyler taught yesterday in the link. It was so good. Mm -hmm. So the entire American concept then of freedom to prosper, the founders wanted was to be based on man's instinctive will to succeed in a climate of liberty, all right, that would result in of the whole people prospering together. That was the vision that the founders had. And they thought that even the poor in this kind of condition could lift themselves up through education and individual effort to become independent and self-sufficient. And, you know, I certainly felt that in my home, I grew up in a home where my parents divorced and it threw us into poverty but my mom was a godly woman and she, she took us to God every chance she could every day. So even though we grew up very poor, we didn't have, I didn't have the opportunities of a lot of my friends around me. We were on Medicaid. We back in the day when we had food stamps, 
But I went to college and I took advantage of the Pell Grants and I worked my way. I worked full time and worked through uh, college and literally in one generation. And then she retired in 1993. Yeah, then I retired. <laughs> Never to take a paycheck again. <laughs> um, but in one generation, my kids know a completely different life because of, you know, the opportunities that through, you know, a sheer, a sheer desire to prosper took root. So Al is going to talk about why the founders made European theories unconstitutional. Communism, fascism, and socialism were deemed unconstitutional by the founders. It's so interesting that people who are opponents to freedom love to throw around the term fascism, not even knowing what it means. It's, it's almost, I mean, it's just the same as communism and socialism. It's when the government owns the means of production and decide what you can do with your property and what you can't do with it. It's all the same. So this is what Samuel Adams wrote. He said, the utopian schemes of leveling, redistribution of the wealth, and a community of goods, central ownership of all means of production and distribution are as visionary and impractical as those which vest all property in the crown. These ideas are arbitrary, despotic, and in our government, unconstitutional. Who said that, Samuel Adams? Samuel Adams, it's Samuel Adams. Who'd you think it was? Uh, I didn't recognize him right off, but that was a quote we shared last week too. Okay, very good. However, the founders did care about the poor and the needy. But here's what Franklin said about that, because Franklin was a have-not. He worked himself, worked his way up. He was a have-not. He was in Europe quite a bit, and he could see that the European schemes of socialism were not good for people. But sometimes the Lord makes us, it becomes where we're not as prosperous as we could be. But, you know, we, we have to learn those lessons. When we make mistakes or we, things don't go so well, that's when we, we look inward. We don't look to the government to bail us out. And sometimes, and this is what this statement basically highlights. It says, to relieve the misfortunes of our fellow creatures is concurring with the deity. It is godlike. But if we provide encouragement for laziness and supports for folly, may we not be found fighting against the order of God in nature, which perhaps as appointed want and misery as the proper punishments for and cautions against as well as necessary consequences of extravagance and idleness. Whenever we attempt to amend the scheme of providence and to interfere with the government of the world, we had need be very circumspect lest we do more harm than good. And this is Franklin's idea of calculated compassion, which the founders adopted. Don't help the needy completely, merely help them to help themselves. Give the poor the satisfaction of earned achievement instead of rewarding them without achievement. Sitting in the Social Services Appropriations Committee as a senator, we would come up with different ways and ideas of helping those who are less fortunate. And a lot of those ideas involve work. You, there's, we have so many needs in the city where people who are getting welfare 
can actually provide a service to the community, community in return for that temporary help. However, Senator Jackson, that, that's a great idea. We, that's, that's awesome. But because we take money from the federal government, they dictate to us in Washington, D.C., how we can take care of the poor and needy. And it was clear they want to create dependency on the government. And, and I, I remember when I sold, I sold life insurance and I was selling it and probably one of the poorest communities of Daytona Beach, Florida. And it was a debit insurance route where I had to actually go to people's homes and collect their premium. And I saw a lot of welfare recipients, a lot of girls who had three, four, five, six, seven kids, all by different dads. And if they even wanted to go to school, they will be penalized and their checks will get cut off. And so, and you saw the cycle repeated from generation to generation to lock these people into poverty so that they would be dependent upon the government. And Benjamin Franklin calls that counterproductive compassion. Counterproductive compassion, that's exactly right. And it breaks up families, it destroys families where instead of encouraging the girl to marry the dad, they encourage the girl to marry the government instead. And, and that's when I talk about the marriage rate among the black community changing in 1960s, that was what happened. And my premise is that when the civil rights bill was voted on in the mid 1960s, Lyndon B. Johnson said, well, I just lost the South to the Republicans because the Democrats fought vociferously against the civil rights bill. And the Democrats were running the South. And when they voted against those, it's flipped the South to Republican because the Republicans were on the right side of the issue as most Americans were at the time. So Lyndon Johnson probably got together with a few people and said, how are we going to get back in power? We've given up the South. And that's about that the same time was it wasn't the New Deal, but it was the, it was the war on poverty. And that's when welfare was changed dramatically. And they actually went out and recruited people of color and they called it reparations. And even when the unemployment rate among black people in New York City was less than four percent, they signed up a record number of people on welfare. And that created dependency on the federal government. And that means votes. So you can agree or disagree with that premise, but after putting two and two together and doing the research, you can see how that could have happened. Number three, allow the poor to climb the appreciation ladder from tents to cabins to cottages, cottages to comfortable homes. And Again, a number four, where emergency help is provided, do not prolong it to the point where it becomes habitual. And then number five, strictly enforce the scale of fixed responsibility, meaning the individual first is responsible, then that person's family, then the local community, and in emergencies, the state, but never, ever, ever the federal government. Never should the federal government be involved in welfare. Okay, Julian, I'm done. Back to you. Are you done? Well, that concludes our three principles this week. You know, I really like these principles. I hope that you will think about them and how that would apply as you would 
craft conversations today where people are talking about it's not fair or it's not equal or people have done wrong, so they deserve entitlements and special exceptions kind of thing. These principles remind us that, yeah, we are all God's children and that we are, we are something. And look, a, a nothing cannot produce a something. So it's a self-evident truth that we are created by a superior something. And because of that, we have a dependency and responsibility to, to this supreme creator. And that, yes, we are equal. We are equal in God's eyes. He loves all of us unfailingly. If you're in the word, that is very clear. God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. But, um, you know, nowhere in the, in the Bible does it say he loves us unconditionally, regardless of what we do. We can do whatever we want. It's all good. Love is love. As long as we're not hurting anyone, it's all good. So this is like Satan's counterfeit to God's, to God's program or plan where uh, we're just reading now in Moses, how Moses goes up, you know, to get the plates, the, the commandments at Mount Sinai. And God says, I'm going to put forth bounds. It says in, in, Exodus 19, 12, that he set bounds, he gave us commandments, he gave us laws and, and really conditions and ex expectations to help us become more through hard work and frugality and, and compassion. And, you know, I think of those bounds in life, these, these um, you know, these conditions and expectations, you know, that it's kind of like our marriage, you know, I, I love you. I know some days you don't think I do, but I love you <laughs> with all my heart. And we have certain expectations for each other. And, and, you know, the way I honor you as a husband, I live within certain boundaries. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I do things that please you and you do things that please me. And because of this, we're able to enjoy the blessings of a privileged relationship, a marital relationship and, and these bounds that we live within as a married couple, these commandments and laws are the way that we shape relationships in the earthly experience. Nope. <laughs> nope. And so Satan has this counterfeit <laughs> plan though, that, you know, look, uh, you know, I'm entitled and you, you can't have a, a, you know, a better relationship than me, or you can't have a bigger house than me. And, and there should be programs to make up the difference. And I should be taken care of, and I shouldn't have to work that hard. And, and that's what Benjamin Franklin called this counter, this idea of counterproductive compassion, that that kind of compassion that, that, uh, and there's four points there, we didn't go over them, but, but they're in the reading there under principle seven, it stifles a person's to desire to succeed in it and it impacts lives and families you know that that welfare uh program that was put forth in 1960 it decimated the black families mm -hmm. you know when you replaced a, a father with the government kind of thing and and even the covid you know uh the checks oh, yeah. and That's you know people at work yeah people realize oh wait a minute i can make more money on unemployment than going back to to work kind of thing and we still, I don't know where all the people went now, because I don't know about you, but we have shortages in restaurants and targets and stores and everywhere, you know. And, and so, uh, um, 
you know, people, it stifles the desire to really get after it and prosper when you think that, yeah, they should take care of me, you know, but compared to this Benjamin Franklin's calculated compassion, where he said, yeah, people should have equal opportunities to, to, to succeed. We should create an environment where they can prosper, but they're going to have to work hard to lift themselves up. And, and if they do, they will reap the blessings of this work and they will feel the blessings of heaven and they will be compelled to want to help other people, not because the government is forcing them, taking their money and, and redistributing the wealth, but they'll want to help other people because God has been so good to them. They will want to help their brothers. That's beautiful because that, that's the concept of stewardship. Yeah. When someone gives something to someone else, they do it for love. And then the person receiving it also receives it in love. But when you force someone, when you take it from someone, and, and when, when you give it in love, then you invoke the blessings of heaven. Then God can intervene and enhance that blessing. But then when it's forced, the person who's taken it from resents it. And the person receive it feels like they're entitled to it. Right. No blessings there. There's no intervention of heaven in that relationship. And that's Satan's. That's the counterfeit to the word stewardship. stewardship. Right, right. So these are really beautiful principles that we talked about tonight of, of liberty and freedom and agency, which spawned free markets and responsibility and personal accountability. These were the self-evident truths of natural law, of the supreme being, of his order of the universe that our founding fathers understood so well. So I'd really encourage you to go back and reread principles five, six, and seven, and spend some time thinking about that. Remember, if you will review this within 48 hours of learning it, you will lock it in your mind and you will retain it better. Now, next week, we're going to do three more principles, principle eight, nine, and 10.